Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 1 to 10. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marsha. Morning, church. Morning. It is good to see you all today. Good to be in Bethlehem together. My uh, son Mo built this uh, stable last year when he was 11, and uh, it's for the uh, Christmas pageant. Yeah. So if you're looking for an ADU, uh, he's available. <clears throat> um, I don't know about you, but at one point this last week, Jen and I looked at each other and said, I think this is the busiest we have ever been in our lives. And it was just the perfect storm of she's working full time and getting ready for Christmas. And we've got a kid in elementary school, a kid in middle school, a kid in high school. We've got soccer and basketball and cheerleading, piano and drums and all the stuff every day. On top of that, things around here get a little busier during Christmas. And I'm also working on a doctorate and have a major deadline coming up on Thursday. And so it's like every single day is jam-packed. And um, I don't know, you know what your life and schedule looks like, but I'm guessing I'm not alone in wondering, maybe it isn't actually the most wonderful time of the year, maybe it's just the busiest, right? So. That's why I really am so happy to see you all here today. Um, I know we've all got 
plenty of other stuff that we could be doing, but as followers of Jesus, when it comes to the season of Advent and the time of Christmas, this is our story. Um, and we ought to be the ones that are living most deeply into this story and celebrating the promises of God to arrive in our world again. And so, well done on being here today. I'm really proud of you for making it. No shade to all you who couldn't make the trip on uh, icy roads and are joining us from uh, the internet, but um, I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to stick to my manuscript closely so uh, we don't go too long here. But um, here's what we're doing. For the four Sundays of Advent, we are uh, looking at a series of ancient Hebrew poems in the book of Isaiah. And this week we're in Isaiah chapter 35, if you want to turn there. And what we have here is a prophetic poem that paints a picture of the day when God will once and for all come to heal the world in its entirety. So remember, Advent's a word that means coming or arrival. And so during this time of year, we both look backward to Christ's first coming or his first Advent, and we look forward to his second Advent as well. And we live as those uh, who live between the Advents, the time between the times. And so this poem invites us to think forward and imagine what it will be like when Christ comes again to make all things new. At the end of this poem, verse 10, we see that there's this image of a highway, and it's full of people who God has redeemed and rescued, and they're singing, and they're celebrating, and welcoming their long-awaited king. Verse 10, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's one of those pictures <clears throat> that paints this beautiful image, maybe similar to some of those crowd shots of the home countries during the World Cup, right? And when Morocco or whoever it is makes it through, you have entire crowds of people celebrating, singing, and rejoicing. So this is the vision of the second advent the day that we look forward to as the people of God. But if we're gonna take this passage seriously and really try to get what God is saying to his people through the prophet Isaiah here, then what we're gonna find is that the creation of a new humanity is actually just one part of the new creation that's coming. So this passage, Isaiah 35, is one of the many places in the Bible where we're very clearly shown that when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, it will truly be good news of great joy, not just for all people, but for all of God's creation that's been damaged and dirtied by sin. It's not just you and I that will rejoice and be glad and welcome him when he comes on that day, but it's all the earth. So we sing the song, Joy to the World, often this time of the year. And it's an amazing song, but did you know it's not actually a Christmas song? When uh, Isaiah, Isaiah Watts wrote it in 1719, he wrote it about the second coming of Christ. It's a Christological interpretation of Psalm 98. So it fits at the first advent, but it's really about the second advent. And I know you, we sing the words a lot, but let me just read them to you. And I want you to listen to this as a work of theology. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. 
while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And finally, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So when we sing that song, whether we know it or not, we are singing the same truths that Isaiah is celebrating here in chapter 35. Because again, when God's kingdom comes in all its fullness, it'll be truly good news of great joy for all the people, but also for all of God's creation. So how far does God's redeeming love reach? Far as the curse is found. So let's look at the first two verses of this ancient Hebrew poem, and I want you to see how true the words of joy to the world actually are. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And so again, the, the scene is an epic celebration, and they're singing, and they're shouting, and they're dancing, but there's no humans yet. And notice in the two, first two verses, who is it that's celebrating and rejoicing? It's the non-human parts of God's creation. The desert is full of gladness. The wilderness is rejoicing. The flowers are bursting into bloom. The land is shouting for joy. The earth is receiving her king. It's an amazing scene, and this is what the Bible says it will be like when Christ comes again. Are the slides working well? Or? They are. Okay. I don't have them back there, so just want to make sure. Um, I've never seen this in person, but um, has anyone ever been to Death Valley during a super bloom? Maybe a couple of you. Every few years, this is what Death Valley in Southern California typically looks like. And as its name implies, it's not a place known for being very hospitable to life. Um, but once every few years, there's this crazy combination of factors where seeds that have been blown in by the Santa Ana winds settle into the topsoil, and they lie there dormant for a number of years until at just the right time where the right temperature and the right weather and the right precipitation comes, usually around January, there's a super bloom and Death Valley goes from looking like this to looking like this. It's an amazing scene where literally for a few days, this entire desert is literally carpeted with wildflowers. And whenever it happens, people freak out. All the hipsters drive over from LA, get the shot for the gram, and it's this whole thing. Um, it's an amazing scene. I would love to see it one day. But Isaiah says that's what it's going to be like when God's kingdom come. It's the most epic super bloom you could ever imagine. But instead of just for a few days, once every few years, in a desolate place, the biblical vision from Isaiah's earlier word is that of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So obviously when we're dealing with poetic, prophetic literature, much of this is symbolic and it's meant to represent the beauty and the peace and the vibrancy of a world we can't imagine. 
And yet, at the same time, Christians believe that this great super bloom is coming. And when it does, it's not just you and I, again, that will rejoice and welcome him on, day, on that day. It's all the earth. So I want to talk about that. Obviously, humans are created to be, uh, humans are central to the story of God's creation and redemption. But you have to try pretty hard to make the biblical narrative a story that's only about humanity. Um, but the truth is that for many of us whose faith has been formed in the American evangelical tradition, discussions about God's heart for the earth and the environment, for the plant and animal kingdoms, those discussions have been pretty few and far between, at least in my experience. I grew up in a conservative Baptist church. There were lots of things we were trying to conserve. Creation wasn't one of them. Um, <laughs> Now, there's probably lots of different reasons why conversations about creation are so rare in so many churches today, but from my observation, there's two main ones. The first one is theological. I think there's a theological reason, that means what we believe about God and how we talk about God. Um, for many of us, we've been handed a theology that in so many ways is good and true and beautiful, yet when it comes to a theology of creation, what we've learned primarily is that the, that the world is cursed and it's temporary and it's fleeting. And so we sing songs like, I'll fly away, or turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Basically, the more godly you become, the less you appreciate this world, right? Um, so in that thinking, if the earth is cursed and temporary and fleeting, why would we waste any time caring for it if it's all gonna burn anyways. It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? What would be the point of that? In fact, I even heard one pastor say, when I check into a hotel room, if I don't like the wallpaper, I'm not gonna spend any time replacing it. This isn't my home, okay? So in a little bit, I'm gonna try to show you why that kind of theological thinking is wrong and why it does matter. But for now, I just want to say that's one of the first reasons I think that lots of Christians don't talk about God's creation. So the first reason is theological. The second one is political. The culture we live in, conversations about earth and environment, plants and animals and all that, tend to be relegated to the world of partisan politics. And it's something that pundits and politicians talk about and argue about, and it's a super polarizing discussion. And so as a result, anytime we hear somebody talking about the environment or the earth, we hear it as a left-wing talking point that's at odds with right-wing theology or something like that, and it just drives me crazy. Because that means you can't talk about creation care without being accused of being a liberal or a progressive or woke or whatever, and for me, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. If you know me at all, for better or worse, being liberal uh, is not what I'm about. It's not where I'm coming from. It's just not. Maybe you like me more because of that. Maybe you like me less because of that. But the truth is, I'm not liberal, okay? Except for with gravy. I'm very liberal with gravy. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, um, so in addition to our theological reasons for not seeing creation care as an essential Christian practice, I think we also have ideological reasons that cause us either to avoid the conversation altogether 
or uh, resist it on political grounds. I'm sure there's a lot more reasons, but those are the two main ones I've seen. So what I want to give you this morning is just a few reasons that I think we should talk about the world that God's made. And my hope here is to look at the idea of practicing reconciliation with the rest of creation, not through a partisan or a political lens, but through a biblical lens, asking what does the Bible teach about the world we live in and how should that inform the way we see and treat the rest of creation. So I want to give you a brief overview of what the Bible teaches about the earth and environment and how followers of Jesus should care about creation. I've got five key verses. There's a whole lot more we could choose from, but this is enough to get us going. So we'll start, of course, in the beginnings, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm not going to read the whole Bible to you, just so you know. We're just (laughs) starting there. This is how the Bible begins. It introduces the two main characters in this story, the creator and the creation. And the rest of the story in the Bible is about the relationship between these two characters. There are some views of the world out there that make, a, that make no distinction between creator and creation. They see everything as one, but Christians have always believed that the world we live in was created by a wise, powerful, loving creator God. And so the world isn't God, but the world was made by God. Now, Christians haven't always agreed on the details about that, about when God created the world and exactly how he did it and how long it took. But the bottom line is that the Bible clearly teaches and that all Christians agree that the world we live in is God's creation. So this is why I use the term creation rather than just nature or environment. There's nothing wrong with those terms but they miss the idea that there is a creator, a creative personal being, an artist, a designer, an architect behind the earth and everything in it. And so by thinking of of the world as creation, we're reminded as 1 John, or John 1, 3 says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. How many of you have ever had an encounter with God out in creation. You've had a moment where you just were overwhelmed with the sense of God's love or God's presence. I know for a fact that for many of you, being out in the beauty of God's world is one of your primary ways of connecting with God. Whether you're hiking the Cascades or surfing in the Pacific or hunting in the Steens or climbing at Smith Rock or riding Phil's Trail or floating on the Deschutes or whatever it is, Um, being out in the world that God's made, that's where we go, many of us, when we really want to experience God. Now, why is that? What is it about creation that resonates so deeply with our souls? And I would argue that at least a big part of it is the fact that the creation reveals the creator. Since God made it, when we immerse ourselves in its character and its details, we receive a revelation of who God is and what God's like. The creation connects us to the creator. This is why it's not so much true anymore, but several years ago, if you rewind in our household and our kids were little, we had an entire wall in our house that was covered with hundreds of 
paintings and drawings and color book pages that the kids were cranking out every single day. And all, all over our house were all of these little works of art. Now, what was it about those little pieces of art that were so special to Jen and I? Why would we create room in our home to hang that art up and to feature it? Is it because the art was really amazing and we were inspired by the artist's use of color and contrast? And <laughs> it's not the art itself that was so special to us. It was who made it, right? The creation had value to us because it was created by someone we love. Now, our kids are actually all pretty good artists, but are those finger paintings they did in preschool ever gonna hang in a museum? Probably not. But would I sell any one of them for $1,000? Absolutely, I would. <laughs> uh, we literally have hundreds of them. They can make new ones all the time. That's beside the point. <laughs> The reason we love our kids' art is because we love our kids, right? And the reason, as followers of Jesus, we love creation is because we love the Creator. We care about the world because God made it. That's probably the only reason we need to care about creation, but there's a lot more than that. So, next, what does God think of His creation? Genesis 1:31. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. So unlike a three-year-old scribbles, God's artwork is actually good. And in the verses between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-31, the creator of creativity looks at each piece of his creation and he pronounces, it is good. And then when he's done, he looks at all of it and says, it is very good. Here's what we need to get. God's not observing that it's good. Like, um, an art critic weighing in on what he likes or doesn't like, he's declaring that it's good. It's like an umpire at a baseball game calling balls and strikes. The pitch isn't anything until the ump declares what it is. And God, who's not only a creator, but also Lord, objectively pronounces his creation as good. And then God creates humans. And we're told that we're made in his image and likeness, and there's so much that I want to say about this. But for now, I just want to say that part of what that means is that we are created to be like God in the sense that when he says something is good, we also would recognize it as good. So in many ways, the life of the disciple of Jesus can be summed up by learning to see as God sees and love as God loves. And if God sees the world and says that it's good, then even though this world has been broken and damaged by sin, followers of Jesus ought to be the first who are able to recognize the goodness of God's world. So back when we lived in Corrales, I had a neighbor named Alan who was a philosophy professor at Oregon State. He had a PhD in environmental ethics and uh, was a great guy. We had lots of good conversations over the years. And I remember one night we were standing in my driveway having a beer and uh, I asked Alan, who identified as a non-theist, I asked him, so what is the foundation of environmental ethics in a non-theistic worldview? Meaning, I'm really curious, if you don't believe in God, then what is it that makes you care so much about this world? And I'll never forget his answer. He goes, I know that this world matters, I can't explain exactly why, but I know that it does. And then he went on to say that in some ways he was actually envious of people of faith because if you believe 
to worship, that you worship the creator of the world, then of course the world would have inherent value. And so my non-theistic environmental ethicist friend thinks that Christians have a better reason for being environmentalists than he does. And I think he's probably right, right? If the God we worship created the world and declared it to be good, then we of all people ought to be among those who care about it the most. So, first, God made the world. Second, he said it was good. Let's keep going. What does God ask humans to do with his creation? Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Not work it like no diggity, like, uh, like a gardener. So God makes the world, and he says that it's good, and then he invites humanity into that world to be his caretakers. And so when humanity is introduced into this story of the creator and the creation, the first thing we see is that humanity isn't separate from the creation. It's not God and then creation and then humans. It's still God and creation, and humans are part of that creation. So that's why we constantly use the phrase, the rest of creation. We're not talking about it like it's something out there. It's something of which we are part. And so as members of God's creation, he not, he not only gives us the unique uh, role and identity of being his image bearers, but he also entrusts us with the unique task of caring for the rest of his creation. Which means that the purpose of God's creation isn't primarily for human consumption or enjoyment, but he gives us the responsibility to work it and to take care of it for his glory. So the psalm tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What that means is that the earth isn't ours. It's his. We are not the owners of the world. We are the tenants called to live carefully and to creatively steward the goodness of creation. I don't know about you, but if God asked me to look after something valuable for him, I would like to do a pretty good job at that. Imagine you're going on vacation and you need someone to come stay at your place for a couple weeks. And so you ask me to come house sit for you. Since I don't have much going on in my life, I say sure. <laughs> so before you leave town, you come over and you give me the walkthrough and you show me everything that needs to be done every day. I gotta feed your dog and water your plants, gotta take out the trash, gotta bring in the mail, pick up the packages, just kinda keep an eye on the place uh, while you're gone. I say no problem and send you on your way. Now imagine you come back after two weeks, <laughs> you open the front door and your house is completely trashed. And there's holes in the walls and stains and spills on the carpet, there's broken windows, there's garbage everywhere, all of your house plants are dead, your dog is just gone, and I come walking down the hall in your bathrobe and say, hey, welcome home, how was your trip? I'm guessing you would have some questions for me, right? You're probably not gonna be real happy, um, and that's understandable. You specifically asked me to take care of your place for you. And not only did I apparently not do that, I actually made it a whole lot worse. And then imagine, as I start to realize you're upset with me, I go, man, I mean, I know you asked me to do all that stuff. I guess I just didn't think you care, cared about it that much. 
Um, you would say, I gave you a specific set of instructions to follow, and you completely ignored them. How much clearer could I have been? The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. How much clearer could he have been? The earth is God's property. The animals are God's pets. The very first job God gives humanity is to take care of this world. And I think for most of us, we'd say, yeah, I know you said that. I just didn't think you really cared that much about it. So the great Wendell Berry summarizes it all, all of this nicely in What Are People For? He writes, the ecological teaching of the Bible is simply inescapable. God made the world because he wanted it made. He thinks the world is good and he loves it. It's his world. He's never relinquished title to it. And he has never revoked the conditions bearing on his gift to us of the use of it that oblige us to take excellent care of it. So this world isn't ours, it's God's. And one of the ways we honor and worship him is by being good tenants, nurturing and caring for it. So our first three verses are from the beginning of the story. God made the world, said it was good, gave humanity the job of taking care for it. I got two more verses, one from the middle of the story, one from the end. For the middle part of the story, the part that we live in, we'll go to Romans 8. So many places we could go, but just capture this. Romans 8.22, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so previously in this letter, Paul has said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what that means is that humans have failed to live the life that he created and called us to live. And one of the ways we have failed is by neglecting the earth and the job that he's given us here. And so as a result, Paul says <clears throat> that God's good world has been torn apart and tarnished by sin. And we can look around and we can see that there's still so much beauty and goodness in creation. It's not completely destroyed. And humans have built a lot of amazing things. But every single one of us knows that the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And that's exactly what Paul's getting at, even though he's writing in a different time, in a different place. No matter where you are or when you are in the story, you can look around and go, clearly we're not in Eden anymore, right? And so he says, as a result, all of creation is groaning in pain. All of creation is groaning in pain. Did you know that there's an island made entirely of plastic waste floating in the ocean between California and Hawaii? It's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. This is just one small part of it. They estimate that it's made up of 80 tons of plastic bags and bottles and other single-use plastic items covering over 600,000 square miles. You know how big that is? Twice the size of Texas in the middle of the Pacific, growing every day. Now, I know that there are debates about whether something like climate change is human-caused or not, but I'm pretty sure we can all agree on this one is on us, <laughs> right? We are the ones that are buying and using and carelessly disposing of thousands of pounds of plastic into the earth and environment. There are, uh, 
really 10 major categories that environmental scientists consider when determining the state of the planet, if you will. Population, hunger, biodiversity, deforestation, water, land, waste, energy, air, and climate. And the consensus is that it, all these things, things are going pretty badly at the moment. Now, obviously, I'm not an expert in environmental issues. I'm a pastor. Some of you have studied ecology and zoology and geology. You understand things about water pollution and soil contamination and genetic engineering and endangered species and all that stuff way better than I do. All I'm saying is that the current state of the planet looks a lot like what Paul described when he saw the mess that humans were making of the world. And as a result, it's not just humanity that needs redemption and restoration. It's all of creation. All of creation groans in pain. So God made the world, saw that it was good, gave it to humans to take care of it, and we epically failed. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Which brings us to our final passage. I couldn't just do one verse, so I'm going to do a whole paragraph. Revelation 21, then I looked, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now, it's confusing at times when he says that there's a new heavens and an earth and the old one has passed away and people have disagreed on it. But what is clear is that Jesus doesn't say at the end that he's making all new things. He says he's making all things new. That the new heavens and the new earth are a recreation of the ones that we currently inhabit and so it's been observed by many that the biblical story starts with a garden and it ends with a city. But what we see is that this new city that comes down from heaven to earth is what you might call a garden city. It's full, if you read the imagery of the prophets, it's full of natural beauty, giant, life-giving trees, food-bearing crops, a magnificent river that flows through it and gives life to all living things. And so this is the trajectory of God's creation project. It starts with a simple garden that would be cultivated into a beautiful garden city where God himself will dwell with his people, which of course brings us back to where we started. This is the day that Isaiah sees in his vision and describes in his poem in Isaiah 35. The Bible clearly shows that when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness, it will be good news, not just for humans, but for all of God's creation that's been damaged and dirtied by sin. So church, this is the story that we enter into as we anticipate Christmas. It's a gospel that's so much bigger and better than anything we can imagine. And if this story of creator and creation is true, then it ought to radically shape 
the way we as followers of Jesus see and treat the rest of the creation. Sandra Richter, who has a PhD from Harvard and teaches biblical studies at Westmont, ends her brilliant book, Stewards of Eden, like this. In sum, I am completely convinced that the redemption of all creation is the gospel. Therefore, creation care is not merely a message of social justice, a wise approach to life on this planet, or a political action item. It is instead a life posture that reflects the character of God and embodies the purpose of his plan. This is the gospel. So lastly, I want to ask what it might look like for us to live into this gospel of reconciliation with the rest of creation, specifically during this season of the year, a time that's really marked more by things like materialism and consumerism. So let me give you just a quick set of suggestions or ideas for how you might have a green Christmas. Number one, get out or buy less and buy local. It's too late to order anything from Amazon anyways, right? So <laughs> you may want to shop a little more intentionally for your last few gifts. My favorite way to buy less is to give the gifts of shared experiences, to do things together, concert tickets or a sporting event or whatever it is, rather than just stuff. Think about buying less or buying local. Number two, get outside. One of the best ways to cultivate a heart that loves what God loves is by spending time in the world that he's made. Maybe even make it your goal in this busy, crazy season to spend at least a little bit of time out, outside each day. Number three, say grace. Giving thanks before meals is one of the best ways I know to live into our identity as works of God's creation and to recognize his provision in all areas of our life. So when we sit down and we enjoy a beautiful meal made of the plants and animals that he created, we better be grateful and say thanks. And finally, practice Sabbath. This is a practice of stewardship and worship that's as old as the creation itself. And especially during the busiest time of the year, I would really encourage you, whatever that looks like for you and your family, whatever day of the week or even part of the day of the week you can spend doing what's not work for you and restoring your soul in God. It's the most human thing we can do. Now, if you've gotten the impression that Pete's some kind of liberal, <laughs> I've never been accused of being a tree hugger, right? If I was, it was a side hug, not a full-on embrace. <laughs> I eat meat, I drive an F-150, I don't know if our recycling actually gets recycled, I do it anyways. Um, this isn't a call to political action, this is a call to worship. We don't worship creation, we worship the creator. And one of the ways we can do that is by caring for his world. The very same world that God so loved that he gave his one and only son, that whoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Sean's gonna come and lead us to the table this morning.